Once again, good morning. We are very glad that you are here, whether you're visiting from in town or out of town. It means an awful lot to us that you've come and, and uh, chosen to be with us this morning, and, and thank you for coming. Um, I knew it was going to be a good morning this morning. Uh, uh, it's kind of indigenous uh, to this area. It uh, has a little bit to do with uh, the win-loss column. And, uh, of course, after last night, uh, uh, it kind of set the stage for this morning, and that's just the way it is for those of us who uh, uh, have lived here for many years and uh, enjoy SEC football. Uh, of course, you know, I still uh, uh, personally uh, miss having uh, uh, Coach Tuberville at the helm, but uh, nonetheless, we're thankful. If you uh, got an outline as you came in, uh, please feel free to, to fill that out as we go through. I'll try to cue you in at the right times. And uh, those of you uh, who've been around enough know that uh, uh, I uh, like uh, cheesy jokes and because uh, I use enough of them. And um, you probably heard this one uh, because it's an old one. There's a, a man who wanted to buy a pet. And so he went out and bought a parrot. And uh, this man learned that you can teach parrots how to speak, and so he thought he would start teaching them some phrases. But what he didn't know is that the former owner had taught this bird already a lot of foul language. So the parrot, so the parrot started, uh, you know, as he's trying to teach him, sound out uh, all of these very crude and, and, and obscene expletives, especially at very embarrassing times when other people were visiting. And... Um, the owner did everything he could to try to discipline this out of the parrot. I mean, he used positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, and nothing seemed to work. In fact, uh, things seemed to be getting even worse. And he even got the idea that this parrot was queuing in and, and kind of enjoyed ticking them off. Well, on one occasion, the parrot just kind of let off a stream of, of invectives. And so he grabbed the parrot, he popped them into the freezer closed the door up for a few minutes, and it got real quiet. Finally, the man opened up the freezer, and the parrot's sitting there shivering. And he looked at the bird and says, Now, you understand that I want you to stop using those words, right? The parrot went, And are you going to use those words anymore? And the parrot went, So he took the parrot, he brought him back and put him in his cage. And the parrot said, Can I ask you a question? He said, sure, you may. Goes back in that freezer. What did that turkey say? <laughs> of all the things that are hard to train and hard to hold on to, there's nothing more difficult than controlling what we say. It says in Proverbs 17, a truly wise person uses few words. A person with understanding, he's even-tempered. Even fools look wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. You know, there's a lot of things in my life that I have done that I wish I had not. But there's even a longer list of things that I wish that I had never said. How about you? Many times, I've been right right up to the moment that I opened my mouth. I have a, several quotes taped inside my Bible. One of them is on the back that I try to look at quite often. It's attributed to a, a Publilius Cyrus. 
And it simply says this, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. You know, there are almost a million words in the English language, and that makes up quite a verbal stockpile, doesn't it? And we can do some rather amazing things with them. And then you add to that how, you know, cyberspace and the information highway, uh, emails and Facebook and Twitter and text messaging, which some of you may be doing right now, <laughs> have kind of sped things up and shrunk our world. And, and I mean, it's, it's staggering. It's almost magical, isn't it? But where is all of this genius getting us when it comes to the substance of our communicating with one another? You know, is it, are we really any better off than our ancestors? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Pulitzer Prize winner in literature from the Soviet Union, who uh, later in his life was exiled from the Soviet Union because he was so outspoken about social injustice and about uh, uh, the corruption in the Soviet government. Shortly after he was exiled in uh, mid-1970s, he, uh, I think it was in 1978, he spoke before a rather large audience at Harvard University, and he said this, all the glorified technological achievements of progress, including uh, the conquest of outer space, do not redeem the 20th century moral poverty. And as we'll discover from James, uh, much of that moral and spiritual poverty is tied to the words that we use. Now, before you think I'm exaggerating, pick up with me where we left off in James chapter 3, verse 1. And while we read together, I want you to notice the extraordinary and the, the, the vivid imagery that James stockpiles in this text. Don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is a highly responsible work. Teachers are, are held to the strictest standards. And none of us is perfectly qualified. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouth. If you could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of his life. A bit in the horse of a mouth can control the whole horse. A small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets the course in the face of the strongest winds. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it may accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. Our speech, by our speech, we can ruin the world. We can turn harmony to chaos. We can throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up with it, smoke right from the pit of hell. This is scary. You can tame the tiger... But you can't tame the tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless God our Father, and with the same tongue, we curse the very men and women made in his image. Curses and blessings out of the same mouth. My friends, this cannot go on. A spring does not gush fresh water one day and brackish the next, does it? An apple tree doesn't bear strawberries, does it? Raspberry bushes don't bear apples, do they? 
You're not going to dip into a polluted mud hole and get a cup of clear, cool water, are you? Now, let's begin by kind of grasping how God elevates the importance of what we say. This is a big deal. If you uh, were to read the whole scope of James, you would realize that what we say is talked about by James in all five chapters in this letter. And he talks about some great things that we do with our with our words, by praying, by blessing, seeking healing through confession, expressing love. But he also goes on to talk about things that we can do that can destroy, by, you know, blaming and deceiving and expressing, you know, prejudice and hate language and slandering and bragging and, and complaining. I get the impression that the church that James is writing to was really struggling with what they said to each other, starting with their teachers and going right out into the pews. The tongue was tearing up the church on the inside while sending the wrong message to those who looked in from the outside. Bottom line, James tells us this on your outlines at the top, the more we have to say, the more we create the opportunity to stumble, to mess up. I ran across a story by a professor of English there at the University of Arizona. And he was late for class one day, and he was speeding, and he got pulled over by an unmarked police car. And as the police officer walked up to the window, he began to explain very nicely how, I know I'm in the wrong, but I'm late for my class, and I know I was speeding, and... And the officer was graceful enough to just let him off with a warning. And when the officer walked away, he simply said, left him with the word, slow down and drive safe. Well, being an English professor, he felt obligated to correct the English of the officer. And he said, excuse me, sir, but it should be slow down and drive safely. Officer nodded, went back to his car, wrote him a check, a ticket for $72. We talk too much. In Proverbs 10, it says this, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Now, yes, one of God's crowning creations is that he created us to communicate After all, what did John call Jesus? The Word. But, I don't know, it seems nonetheless, ironically, that our problem is that we talk too much. And we just can't quite get enough of this. In fact, we even love talk shows. We sit there for hours just watching other people talk. And it doesn't matter whether they know what they're talking about or not. The whole time, we're just not quite queuing in to the dangers that James is talking about here. Of course, James isn't just taking uh, uh, talking off his own head. He's taking his cue from his own elder brother, Jesus. When he said this in Matthew 12, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, I know talk can be cheap, but you know something? It can cost us a great deal. Now, 
I'm thinking as I'm processing all of this, and you may be as well, God, why do you care so much about what we say? Certainly, there are bigger issues in our world. There's a lot more important things to talk about in our world than simply the fact that people have a tendency to talk too much. But it starts to come into focus when we realize the source. What we have to say is an inside-outside process. James tells us that a spring, for example, can either produce fresh water or salt water, not both. It's going to be one or the other. In other words, the tongue is only the bucket that carries what is already in the well. And so if the water is poisonous, what good is it going to do to paint the well, you see? The real issue isn't the tongue, but what springs up from inside that fills my mouth. You remember what Jesus said? Luke chapter 6. The good man produces good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man produces evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see on your outlines the primary speech organ. The birthplace of our words is the human heart. And if this is so, if you stop to think about it, that gives a clear window into our character. What we say says something about who we are. If it wasn't in us already, it would not be coming out of us. What we say, characteristically, is what we are. But there's something else that you have to measure here. Again, it's found in the ancient wisdom of Proverbs, and it says simply this. The tongue has the power of life and death. There is enormous life-shaping power in the tongue. And I think about that moment in Isaiah's life when he actually got to stand in the holy place before the very presence of God. And do you remember what he said? He said, woe to me, I am ruined. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm amongst the people of unclean lips. It seems, interestingly enough, as Isaiah stood before God, that his most painful awareness was what he and the people that he belonged to, what they had to say. So this is a big deal, you see. Now, James tells us that there are two things that can go wrong when we're not careful about what we say. And it's here where James starts to stockpile all of this vivid imagery. Number one in your outlines, my words can throw my life off course. James compares the tongue to the steering wheel of your life, a bit in the horse of a mouth, the small rudder on a huge ship. That is, the words we use have the power to determine our future. And so, if you don't like where your life is heading today, James is telling you that one of the first things you've got to do is to learn a new language. Because so much of where we're headed and so much of where we end up in this life is directly related to how 
we use our words. James tells us that the tongue, and he uses a phrase, sets the course of nature. Literally translated, it sets the wheel of being. And in the uh, ancient expression, it referred to kind of the ups and downs of life, and it carried on the scope of pointing to the entire human existence. And so what James is trying to say to us here is that the tongue may be small, but it can undo all of the good that we have built up over a lifetime. This is a big deal. But then James also associates the words we use with the image of a small spark, you know, setting off a fire. And by the way, to the original readers, this was extremely alarming. Because I can tell you that few disasters in the ancient world created more fear than the, than the idea of facing a fire because they just did not have the resources to deal with it and battle it. You see, not only can what I say throw my own life off course, but he broadens the scope here. Because like a long-range missile that's launched from a remote place, or maybe a minefield, that's planted to do damage later for someone who happens to walk by. My words have wide-ranging impact on the lives of other people. The rabbis used to say that the tongue is more dangerous than the hands because the hands can only kill up close, but the tongue can kill at a distance. And like a fire that is ignited and once it's been released, haven't we all learned this? We lose control of where it goes. Now just pause for a moment to think of what the words of others and how they have deeply affected your life. You know, in good ways, bad ways. And understand it's also reciprocal what your words have done in good ways, in bad ways. I guess we could all be, you know, indicted for spiritual arson, couldn't we? Now, having been out to uh, places like Glacier National Park and Yellowstone National Park amongst the Rockies, I have seen uh, where hundreds of square miles of lush forest that took, you know, hundreds of years to emerge that were left as nothing but black soot and charred remains, and all because of just, you know, a careless moment. And so here James takes us to those moments in our lives where our words damaged something that was valuable to us, a destroyed marriage, a ruined friendship a devastated career, a split church. I understand that there's a certain species of cranes that live in the Taurus Mountains in South Turkey. And these cranes tend to uh, cackle a lot, especially when they fly. Unfortunately, all of that noise also gets the attention of the eagles that are indigenous to that area, and they swoop down and seize these cranes for supper. So, the experienced cranes, the wise ones, have learned to scoop up stones large enough in their mouths 
to prevent them from cackling while they fly and becoming someone else's meal. And I'm sure it's a bit inconvenient and maybe irritating at times, but at least they get to their destination. And James says, how many of us are where we don't want to be today because we just couldn't control what we said? My words can throw my life off course. Second on your outline, my words can distort how I, we, reflect God to others. James tells us that out of the same mouth comes, he says, blessings and curses. Now, when he uses the word curses, he's not, he's not speaking specifically here in the idea of what we understand as profanity. Although I guess that would be included. But what he's talking about here is this habit of, of verbally diminishing other people. You know, gossip, slander, hate language, racist remarks, all the verbal sparring and stereotyping uh, uh, in our culture today. James tells us that when we talk in these ways, God takes it very personally because we're cursing a human being who's created in his image. And by the way, that includes those who are different from me and from you. Different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different moral lifestyles, different religions, or having no religion at all, the the fastest growing religion in America today, by the way, whether they dress gothic or hip or straight, it doesn't matter. It's like the little girl who is loving on her daddy's neck. Her brother just walks into the room whom uh, she just had a fight with, and she sticks her tongue out at her brother. Dad didn't see it because she's looking over his shoulder, but mom saw it, and she came over and took that daughter away from that father and said, look, you cannot love on your father's neck At the same time, stick your tongue out at your father's son. And that's what James is saying to us here. Think about this. And in a way, in some attempt to kind of burst this, this, the naive Christian bubble that we live in today in America. America has become the third largest mission field in the English-speaking world. Our culture, haven't we noticed, is not only is, but continues to aggressively place us Christians on the margins because they have bought into the stereotypes that Christians are hypocritical and hateful, and we are the source of intolerance in our culture, which, by the way, to some degree, we have earned as a Christian culture. You know, we talk about Devo, the, the Christian ghetto. And by the way, politics is never going to do the work of God, so let's stop depending on that. It depends on us. Jesus in the world, the body, the church. And so how are we going to get a hearing in this world, speaking as exiles, if our words don't consistently reflect God's heart about the very people that God wants to reclaim through us. 
You see, in our culture, the message, the, the, the message is the messenger. What, you, what they see, what they experience in our presence, whether in a building or more likely outside the building, is the message they get. There was an interesting testimony written by a woman who had a very serious throat condition. After going to several doctors, they just determined that her vocal cords were so severely damaged that she would just not be able to speak. And they suggested six solid months. Now, she had six children. And uh, also being, you know, the emotional and directional hub of the family, she had to do a lot of improvising. And so, first of all, she got a whistle to blow when she needed their attention. And then she had all of these notepads spread all over the house so she could write notes to them. And in reflection, over the six months, she said, first of all, I was shocked at how much quieter the house was. But what convicted her the most was how many times in her haste she scribbled off a note to somebody, but when she actually looked at it, she just ended up wadding it up and throwing it away. And she said, I'll never forget the impact it had on me to actually see my words before I used them, before the person I was going to use them on got to hear them. Well, it's my guess that we all meet up with a good bit of frustration about this. And that's why James likens the tongue to a barely caged, restless beast. Quite an image, isn't it? It might look under control, but it can just turn at a moment's notice. I remember going through Yellowstone National Park where, you know, the buffaloes roam free. And by the way, this particular picture that is up there was actually entitled Stupid Man. Now, buffaloes might look docile. They do. They look very domesticated when they're out there, you know. You might just think they're kind of muscled-up cows that have grown hair and kind of gone hippie. But I've talked to park rangers about we tourists who've gotten a little bit too up close and personal. And I have heard some horrific stories of how wild these animals really are and the damage they can do to naive and unsuspecting tourists. In fact, there's one area down in the the, the, uh, southern part of Yellowstone where uh, most of the buffalo are, and you go to this one little lodge and they show videos. I remember watching this one video of this buffalo that was sitting near a rather good-sized evergreen tree, and he was just minding his own business and just, you know, seemed rather content to eat. And so a tourist decided he was going to go up and stand on the other side of the tree and just kind of play peekaboo with it. And I mean, uh, in a split second, the blink of an eye, that buffalo went right through that tree. And the next thing you saw was a man being tossed about 10, 12 feet in the air, going head over heel. They may look docile, but they're not. In fact, James just comes right out and says it. We can tame an animal, but we cannot tame the tongue. All it takes is the right circumstances, and it's wild nature flares up and becomes uncaged. 
Isn't that how it works? And so, I don't know what you think about all the stuff that James says, but it's, it's almost depressing. And so I find myself asking the question, well, can we change? And it's built into what James says, by the way. The lifelong agnostic Bertrand Russell wrote, Man still has a caveman's heart. We must find a way to change a caveman's heart. But the only thing our culture seems to be offering are a thousand you know, self-help books to translate personal reformation into little more than, you know, love yourself, look out for yourself, think, act, speak more confidently, diet, jog, have some fun. But isn't it kind of cruel... Isn't it kind of cruel to promise a person that he or she can change and then point them to an inadequate power source? Has any of that worked for you, by the way? Whether you're a believer or a non-believer. We cannot change a caveman's heart simply by telling the caveman to look inside and just, you know, just love what you see. It doesn't matter how much we bite our tongue, how much education we pursue, how frequently we seek therapy. The moral DNA of our hearts is just, it's just too marred. If you can't look at your own life and figure that out, just look at history. And so... What we've got to find is something or someone that's more powerful and trustworthy than ourselves to help us. And that's why God points us to the wonder and the mystery of his indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit. I want you to listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty, the word in NIV is the unwholesome, it's kind of the picture of, well, an animal decaying, you know, roadkill. Don't let anything foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps, each word a gift. Now notice what he goes on to say. Don't, don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. You see, God doesn't just want to do something for us, save our souls. God wants to do something in us right now. On the bottom of your outline, God's indwelling spirit can help you learn a new Language, And I believe that if we are sensitive to the guidance of the Spirit, that God will prompt us when we need to shut up and when we need to speak up. Let me close with this story. Rubel Shelley tells this. It's from a woman named Anna who wrote this in about a phone conversation she had. It was a Saturday morning, and Anna was enjoying a little quality time with her family, and the phone rings, and it's a telemarketer introducing himself as Pete. You know, you always wonder if that's really their names. 
And as this person reads through this scripted introduction, he asks, and how are you this morning? And Annika kind of sensed his voice was very cracked and scratchy, and he didn't sound really good. And she uh, uh, said, well, I'm doing very well. Tell me, Pete, how are you doing this morning? And there was a long pause on the phone. And Pete says, you know, I've called over 80 people this morning, and no one has asked me how I'm doing. And he says, well, Pete, you don't sound very well. And, and he said, well, I'm struggling with some severe allergies. She goes, you know, I am too. And they talked about that for a minute or so. And finally, Pete got around to saying, I'm calling for such and such a charity. And Anna said, that sounds like a great cause. But, you know, after uh, what I give to my church, uh, any of the extra money I give goes to a particular Christian cause where we're helping AIDS victims in Africa. And Pete was interested in this and said, well, tell me more about this. And by the time the conversation was over, Pete had promised to send a check to her church to help with the AIDS victims, and he did. Our words have the power to destroy or to nourish life. And the world needs to hear those words. If we can help you in any way this morning, you can come forward as we sing a song. Also, you will note that our shepherds go to the back of the foyer during the closing song. And you know why they're there. And like to remind us from time to time, as does Tom, as we stand up here. If you have a special need and you want to do something really powerful and wonderful, you can talk with them. If need be, go to a private room and just pray together. If you need help from this family in any way, feel free to either come forward or go to the back as we stand and as we sing.